morning, afternoon, or evening. I don't even know what time it is anymore, but um, <laughs> I'm so happy to uh, have a wonderful, wonderful conversation today. I, know, just so, I always say this, I'm so excited, but I am so excited oh. to be able to talk with um, my new friend here, Denise. And we just recently met, and I was just blown away by some of the things that uh, I've learned about you and that you shared during this time that uh, we were together. So Denise, can you introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, first, thanks so much for having me. And it was very exciting for me to meet you. So it's a mutual admiration club here. Um, The best way to describe me is, uh, other than a mom and a wife, a friend, a daughter, sister, uh, is I was a person with a big dream. I I was one of those people that I got this idea kind of like a lightning bolt, aha kind of experience happened to me, ironically, at a bar uh, while drinking with a bunch of friends in North Miami and um, had an aha around my own identity as a Latina, as a first gen. And it was so profound to me. So I decided I would make a movie about it so that people like me wouldn't feel so alone in their identity. And the only problem is, is that, or was, was that I had no training as a filmmaker. I had no background, I had no schooling and YouTube was not even a thing. It was like the late nineties. So I sat on the idea for a long time, 17 years. And then one morning I realized, wow, I'm No one's ever going to hand me those things. Life is never going to look this perfect. I will die with this idea um, if I don't stop the madness of my life and begin working on it. And so about eight years ago, I began. And two years after that, the film came out. And my life has not been the same since. And the name of the film is, you can do a shameless plug. It's okay. (laughs) Thank you. The name of the film is Being Enya. And it's uh, basically the phonetic spelling of the extra letter in the Spanish alphabet, the Enya uh, with a little squiggle on the top. So being and then E-N-Y-E. Yeah, fantastic. And I um, loved hearing about the film. And I I remember when we were at this meeting together, we we were talking about... um, how we talk about mental illness and mental health in our communities, especially black and brown communities. And um, use a particular phrase, and though I don't speak a lot of Spanish, I spoke enough to know, yeah, we have that same phrase in the black community, but it sounds just a little bit different. So what was the phrase that that you were using it? Yeah, the phrase is los trapos sucios se lavan en la casa, which means we wash our dirty laundry at home. And everybody knows what it means. And we can even say the shorthand to each other, because of los trapos sucios. So whenever anyone reveals anything to each other, you know, we always say, well, you know, los trapos sucios, right? And then immediately that's code for no, no, I know we're not supposed to say anything, but we are right now. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Exactly, exactly. Like we're our, our, we're airing, as we say, we're airing our dirty laundry. Like we don't air our dirty laundry is kind of what I was taught that. And again, you know, I always want to make sure people understand when we're talking about mental health, there's nothing dirty about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's exactly the point. But, but at the same time, you know, these are things from, at least from my family, that it means, you know, this is something we need to take care of in the home. People outside of the home will understand it. Um, And we already carry a burden of being Black in America, that when you try to talk about other issues, whether it be disability issues, mental health issues, other struggles, it's kind of like this 
the wording isn't right, but I, I understand it as this, it's this double burden. So let's keep this in the house um, mm-hmm. so that you don't have to carry this double burden. That's kind of how I understood it growing up. Yes. So, yeah. Is that the same a little well, bit? It's funny when you say it, because I feel like it's two things. Like I would say in its best interpretation and also like in, in its most best form, like a uh, lived form, that that's what it would be. It would just be like, listen, people won't understand this. So let's just keep it here. It's just easier. And then there's the other side, the darker side, the shadow side, which is, you know what, this actually has to be kept a secret to protect people in this family who are not being properly dealt with, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so I would say it's in category B that my fascination is and that my work is kind of evolving into the, these, it's the, the duality of, you know, I'm certainly not uh, advocating to tell all your secrets all the time to everybody. This is not what I'm saying. What I'm interested in, what the inquiry that I'm interested in is, is what are the secrets and why do we keep them? And who does it hurt to keep them? And I think historically in my community and in many communities, it historically hurts the women. And so that's what my I would say my deepest work, which is my upcoming book is about and an upcoming film project as well. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that's um, exactly kind of when I think of those sort of don't air your dirty laundry, skeletons in the closet, like all of these things are wrapped up into, I think you're right. I've I've never really thought about the protection thing. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So when you talk about that, especially as you enter into some of these new projects of yours, how do you think about the whole secret thing? So it wasn't, the thing is, is that's funny is that it wasn't my intention to explore this. My intention was to make the movie that I made. And honestly, it seemed like so far out of the realm of possibility that it would ever happen, that I never really thought past it. But then once it did happen, there was a phenomenon, I'll call it a phenomenon. And so after, so the film has been out now for six years, three years pre-pandemic, And I did about 150 dates live on the road, mostly not in my hometown of Denver, even though I'm a native New Yorker for the record. (laughs) Um, There was a thing that kept happening and that was uh, people would line up, beautiful, gracious people would line up and say, thank you. Thank you for telling our story. Um, And then maybe like a reflection. And let's say out of any given screening, there were 20, 50 people waiting to talk about 10% of those people would share a secret with me. Something that oftentimes they would say, I've never shared this with anyone. Most of those secrets were in the category of sexual assault and domestic violence. And these are not things I was wanting to tackle or intending on tackling. These were things that I had also had to deal with and intentionally left out of my film, literally because I was under the spell of the saying, los trapos sucios. I knew I couldn't cross the line. And I also had no desire to, because I also very much experienced the cost of embarrassment and shame, not only coming to me, but potentially coming to my family. So it it just wasn't even a thing. I just wasn't, I was a no to, to adding those truths to a film that is mostly about my life. And then Mm. what was reflected back at me were these people sharing these truths that I had in common with them, but I wasn't ready to let them know that I also had shared them 
because I just wasn't ready to, I wasn't ready to go there. Yeah. And then it's one of those things that it's like, um, sometimes I feel like a slow learner. Like I have to make a lot of mistakes to get something right. And I have to hear things many, many, many times to begin to see patterns. But eventually Mm -hmm. I would say at around 50 ish, I feel like there was one screening. I call it screening 44. It's a chapter in my book. And that's when I was like, Whoa, I think there's something here. And once I realized that, then I was just sort of testing it. And then I thought, okay, well, let's see if it's at the next screening and the screening after that. And indeed it was. And there was one last screening that happened in New York City. And it was after that that I decided, no, this is a thing. It's happening all the time. It's very interesting. It didn't happen at all during the pandemic when I was doing virtual events because this thing needs to be told from one human being to another in close proximity. It's just not zoomable. It's not something you share on a DM. You know what I mean? Yes. And that I found very interesting. So here I am screening the film and the same thing is happening over and over and over again. And I realized that I was being given an opportunity to do something even bigger with the platform that I had created. And I perhaps was being shown what I really needed to do. And that the first film was um, the doorway and that really what what needed to be discussed was happening in the kitchen. But you have to walk through the doorway to understand like where you are, right? Because all the good stuff happens in the kitchen, the real conversations, the sharing, the truth. And yeah. so I took it, I took it seriously. And, um, and even though it's very scary to me, still the idea of revealing some secrets that I packed away a long, long time ago, I have been examining them through the writing of my book and sharing them and have only experienced more peace and confidence and actually a sense of belonging to my life and my community than I ever have, which I kind of feel like what I was taught was the secrets will keep you powerful. The secrets will keep you in control. It has been my experiences that it's the opposite. Sharing the Mm. secrets has been an opening for love and compassion and empathy. And this I never anticipated. And I really want to give that opportunity for people to read about it and to see it in a film and to honestly not to ask them to tell their secrets but to ask them to contemplate it you know right and to consider it so when you when you were making the first film being enye um which i love the title especially when i first read it i was like enye e-n-y-e i'm like no and with a tilde you know in my head (laughs) (laughs) which is what it was i guess right or what it is right but um what about that film do you think even though you weren't exposing sort of your, the secrets that people were telling, there was something that was exposed for people maybe that then gave them the comfortability to share the secrets with you. Like what was happening that do you, that made that happen? Do you think? Yeah. So great question. Cause I, and I have thought long and hard about this. Like what could I have possibly said to me, make people feel, cause at first it felt like I can't handle this. Like I'm not the person you should be telling this to, you know, because I don't know what to do with all of this. And so, um, but certainly that's not where I am anymore, but I think it's because a lot of times when I'll speak for myself, that it's so rare that we get a chance to do something on such a big 
level, I, like, you know, make a movie and then have it and then tell the story of my life. Right. I think most people, if they were going to approach it, like uh, approach the opportunity, they would approach it in a more academic way because they might think that that would be the way to, and I'm going to say impress, but I feel like, you know what I'm talking about? Like people of color, we have to impress people. Like our, we, we constantly have to be impressing and proving and showing you that I belong here and I deserve to take up space here and all the things, right? So like, mm -hmm. I think that a lot of times uh, people go to the academic explanations and academic kind of versions of documentaries or, or you know, papers, essays, books because that perhaps might be the most um respected uh mm -hmm. but this was not my approach and actually my creative partner is an oscar nominee and so he knows how to tell a story and he mm -hmm. actually said i don't want any experts on in this film i don't want to talk to a single person who knows more than you and it was actually his idea to share my life story as the way through to explaining this lived experience. And one of the things that I did was I shared about the deaths of my father and brother. They're unrelated and they happen within three years of each other. And I argued with him about including them because first I spent a lifetime not talking about them because these things happened when I was very young and, um, and I experienced what it felt like to be pitied. And to be mm. pitied is one of my most least favorite ways of being interacted with, right? Because mm -hmm. there's, it's just a horrible feeling to be pitied. So I spent my entire teenage years, high school years being pitied by peers, parents, and teachers, and the people that we went to church with. So the very last thing I would want is to advertise that I had dealt with the, the depth of pain that I had dealt with as a child, not to mention the things that happened before that, which will be in the film, the next film and in my book. But these two things were enough and my honest feelings about them and my honest reflections about my grief still affecting me to this day, I think really hit a nerve with people because I found myself as an adult being very... Um, connected to like my masculine side and becoming mm -hmm. very tough and not showing people the more feminine, I would say side that is um, also a part of me, but we shot a scene in the graveyard where my dad and my brother are buried and it's impossible for me to maintain this veneer of toughness where their bodies were, you know, laid to rest. And so I think that being willing to show the duality of one's identity extends so much farther than ethnicity even, and that our relationships with our loved ones affect who we believe we are in the world. I think that really hit home for a lot of people. Yeah, I can so resonate with that when you were speaking about how we show up and how yeah. we feel we have to show up or in some ways, I think, you know, my family did tell me stuff about, you know, make sure you sit in the front of the classroom, make sure that you raise your hand when a question is asked, make sure yeah. that, you know, you're always presentable, like don't, don't wear, you know, um, jeans with holes in them, you know, mm -hmm. even if it's the fashion, like don't do that because people mm -hmm. will think it's not the fashion that you're poor or all of these things are really ingrained in my mind. And, and I don't know if people understand that about the pressures that sometimes we're under to, uh, 
show up. I was going to say perform because sometimes yep. it does feel a bit performative, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and it's it's so unconscious. It's so automatic. And it's only when we are not being that way that we realize, wait a second, like there's a whole other way I can be here, which is super interesting. One thing, so like crying at work, um, I have always been an emotional person. I am definitely what is defined as an empath. I am a deeply feeling human being, right? And so there had been times in my past before this where I'd be at the office and something would affect me and I would cry. Like this was definitely me. And never in my life have I cried more than after working on this film, like crying on stage, crying with clients, crying with crying with people. I have allowed myself, like there was a switch that I just wasn't allowing myself to, to hit. And I decided, you know what, I'm not going to hold back anymore. I'm just going to, you know, when they talk about this idea, there's this idea, bringing your whole self to work. And to me, that's, it's like bringing my whole emotional self to work. Mm -hmm. And the most bizarre thing is, is it's that feminine side. So I know I present, I walk in, I know I do. It's just, I've been training my whole life. I feel like, and protecting myself and all that stuff. And, (laughs) and then like, um, and then when I really feel, uh, you know, and share and talk about the work that I get to do, it gets me emotional. It is the most bizarre relationship I've ever had because I've never had a job that would require that side to come out of me. But here doing this work, it's almost necessary. Like it doesn't work unless I let it, unless I let those feelings wash over me and like allow them to wash over me. And it has been a great gift, but it has also kept me very open and let's say exposed. But Mm -hmm. I, I guess I spent a lifetime, you know, shut. And so it's still novel and new and it's also terrifying, but still my preference, you know? Yeah. 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 The the first time I actually, um, you know, there's the, the empath side of myself and the, oh my God, I'm so afraid of people side of myself. Like like they happen all at the same time. I'm a gem, I'm a Gemini true to the core. So yeah. So one of the things that um, I remember the first time I really cried, cried, I mean, my mother would call them, oh, those are crocodile tears. Oh. I, didn't, I didn't know a crocodile had tears, but I still uh-huh. have to look up what is the origin of crocodile tears other than they're not real. They're kind of like you're, they're, they're performative, I guess. Or performance. Yes. Um, but I was in therapy and, you know, I had been in therapy for years and not a, not a, not a tear, not a scream, no. not a nothing. I would just show up and kind of do what I had to do. And uh-huh. one day something happened and I burst into tears. And I mean, literally it is like when you sleep, you're fast asleep. And then you snore and you wake yourself up. Have yes. you ever had that? Right? No, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I've had it happen a couple of times where it's like, who, who was snoring? I sleep by myself. Okay, it was me. I woke myself up. <laughs> but it was like that where I was in therapy and I was crying. And it was like all of a sudden that I was conscious that I w- it was me who was crying. Oh, and wow. it, it like, like scared the poo-poo out of me. And I literally oh. got up. I looked at the therapist. I couldn't even say anything. I like ran out of the room and I uh-huh. kept on running. Oh. Uh, I mean, I did, I did come back, of course. Like that was like, I don't know where that came from. I don't know what needed. Well, that's a good thing. We're having a breakthrough. And I was mm. like, you could take that breakthrough and you could stick it someplace because I really don't <laughs> care to have that right now. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's so it's so interesting how we mm-hmm. think about 
how we show up and what things we can do and what spaces and all of these, I call them scripts that we have to have in order mm-hmm. to kind of exist. And I know everybody has them, you know, because they're social norms, really. It's about like social norms. But again, you know, who's the norm based on, right? It's kind of not based on black and brown people. <laughs> I'll mm-hmm. say that much about it. No, so, no, it's um, true. you know, as you start to open up and, and realize that, you know, these things are, you know, things that people will come up and, and, and share, how did you decide that now it's an exploration thing that you now want to even expose the exploration of it all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So here's the thing. I had to be let off the hook because I was still very much bought into the idea that unless it's provable, scientific, and data-driven and all citable, that it wasn't legit. And my partner was like, Denise, it, it, it can be legit because it's your lived experience. And that was very, that was a very hard belief system for me to break. And I also was fortunate enough to be in front of thousands of people and over the course of three years asking pretty much the same exact questions and then coming up to me sharing pretty much the same things. And so I remember being at a hospital uh, in a hospital group uh, screening in Massachusetts and I must have said something um, that downplayed my um, my experience with this or what have you. And someone came up to me afterwards and she said, Denise, I don't want to hear you saying that um, that your experience isn't valid because you, you are literally a qualitative researcher. Like you, you're just not calling yourself that because every, all those conversations would be classified into qualitative research, you know? So it was just this like nameless, faceless Latina woman who was just like a boss enough to tell me uh, and give me the feedback. And thank goodness I was open enough to hear it and say, you know what? Okay. Thank you very much. And And so I chose to just trust myself. And that's when I started realizing, hang on a second, there is a connection here between secret keeping as a norm in the Latino culture. And uh, even bigger than that, secret keeping as a norm in collectivism, the ideology that informs Latino culture, right? Which is all about the Catholic church. So that immediately should make sense to a lot of people. (laughs) And our uh, meaning one's ability to experience belonging in their lives at work and in their communities. I realized there was a connection there and I wanted to explore that. So snaps, claps, thumbs up, whatever. I was making facial expressions that unfortunately people can't see, (laughs) or maybe they're fortunate that they can't see them. But as soon as you said qualitative researcher, I nearly like, and I know I can't scream into the mic because that would be rude, but I was like, internally, I was like, yes, the, you know, Y-A-A-A-A-S-S-S-S-S-S, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, right? Like that kind of excitement because in the peer movement in the consumer survivor ex-patient peer movement, long time, you know, because it's been generations, so it has different terms. What, what happens when we tell our personal story is we're told it's anecdotal. Oh, that's anecdotal. Right. Mm. Uh, by, by the powers that be by, by academics and so forth. Well, that's, that's anecdotal. Thanks for sharing. But yeah. it's so funny that you can read a case study. That's not anecdotal, but that's evidence, you know, and it's like one per, right? Like a uh-huh. provider or a researcher can present this one thing and suddenly it becomes representative of a class or a population of things. And that's evidence. And I'm like, well, not anecdotal too. That's just one, mm. one example, just like mm-hmm. a personal story is one example 
And so uh, when you said that, I was like, yes, yes, that's how we need to understand the power of our individual experience. It's a data point somewhere. It's somebody's mm-hmm. data point. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're just giving the story to that data point that they just see as something on a graph or a number in a large group of numbers. So totally, totally agree. And, and then um, also about this idea of secret keeping sort of in collectivist cultures. And, and I'm, you know, and I've never really thought of it as a particular burden on women. So, and, and particularly Latina women, cause I'm not Latina, you know, what are some things besides waiting to see your film and read your book um, mm-hmm. that we could be thinking about, especially in the peer world or in the mental health world about supporting people to find those safe places to be emboldened. Right. Know? Yeah, and I think it's very interesting because I would feel the exact same way. And I, and I, and I, uh, the things that we're talking about are very risky, and they shouldn't be. And so, uh, kudos to you for bringing it up. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna pat my own self on the back. These are the conversations that need to be normalized and explored, and and given permission to not say it perfectly and and leave out things and add things maybe that are new. But um, yeah, there was a. I was sexually assaulted my freshman year at Boston University, and there was a lie perpetuated that I got kicked out of school because I was a party girl. When that is not the case, I got kicked out of school because my perpetrator was living on my floor and was making my life miserable. And I didn't Mm. report for all kinds of reasons. And, um, And to this day, you know, that happened 30 years ago. And to this day, my family doesn't know the truth. And when the book comes out and the film comes out, my extended family that believes that, oh, Denise is a party girl, uh, not only was a secret kept, but there was a lie misrepresenting me as a human being. Mm -hmm. And what that does, yes, to one's identity, like, it really begs the question, like, what is it when someone really is inquiring, who am I and where do I belong? What do they have permission to consider in all of it? Because there's a lot more than, uh, than just like ethnicity, nationality. I hate using the word race because it's a construct, but race, like all of the things that I think that get thrown in the pot that people just automatically think it's these, these three things, maybe a few more things, um, but not much else. No, there's a lot much else, but there isn't yeah. permission to examine those things and recognize the cost. You know, yeah. there just isn't. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So I think this is, it, it's such a big topic, right? It's, there's, it's just so big, right? But, but I, and I do want to say that because I wrote down definitely representation matters, meaning, you know, I know we're working on this in, in film, film in the film industry and so forth in, in the sense of, being able to see yourself on screen starts to have you be able to find places maybe to have this conversation. Meaning if your movie being Enye hadn't been made, where would this conversation be having? You know, where would people be having this conversation? And then there's the big, there's the big golden screen in which, you know, you don't get access to the people who make those films, right. you know, unless you live where I happen to live and know people who were in the quote unquote, I live in Hollywood, let's just say, right? <laughs> So there are a lot of things and, you know, my, my neighbor is an actress. I get to go to a lot of things and I get to see the actors, the producers, Mm. the writers, but that's really rare. If you live in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, or you live in, you know, somewhere and wherever that may not be the opportunity that you would have. So, so first of all, representation matters. And I hope this is also inspirational to people in this sense, Um, not to be inspiration porn, but inspirational to people in this sense that you said you had this idea. 
-hmm. and you held on to this idea and you kept thinking, how am I going to do this idea? How am I going to do it? And then you realize if I don't do it, it's not going to get done. And you just did it like for lack of a better way. You know, you just, I always say, if you can do it, Denise, other people can do it. And I guess I'm trying to figure out too, like, these are big, big things that we're talking about. So once your secret is out, once you're share, sharing, once you've opened up the vulnerability door and you start to knock down some of these sort of constructs that have been going on for ages, where do you go to get support and help through the process? Yeah. So that's like the big question. And part of in in my first film, before I made it, I didn't realize, to be honest, that people might seek help. I just didn't know that it would be that powerful. And it, it was. And I also know that what I'm choosing to tackle, what my partner and I are choosing to tackle in this next film is absolutely something that it's, it's literally an invitation. And so we will be partnering with different organizations and little and guiding people. Like if you're ready, no, there isn't going to be pressure to share secrets. There's going to be a strong invitation to consider how free you might feel if you told just one person. And then certainly, and, and if that person was a mental health professional, then that would be the absolute um, most amazing thing that could happen because that would mark the beginning of someone's healing journey. So, um, so I would say to the professionals, we will guide them. And yeah. uh, certainly not to me, you know, I'm not, that's not my, my profession. My, I would call my profession an artist who exists to express this in all the different ways I could possibly do that. And um, with a commitment to transformation as my outcome, because it's not fun for me to be at the other end of hearing all of these secrets, knowing that they have not changed, you know, knowing yeah. that I'm about to go on the road again with my film. And what's predictable is I'm going to hear them all over again. And, but now I'm actually doing something about it. And, uh, and, you know, it's the little I can do. And if we all do whatever we feel called to do, then we've got a shot at changing things, you know? Right, right. So this is, um, you know, been a wonderful conversation. And I do want to say that one thing that we do for the podcast regardless of the uh, topics being discussed is um, in the description, we always post the National Suicide Prevention Mm. Lifeline um, so that people have access to it. I remind people to hang on to the number, post it somewhere. And it is a line to call, you know, even if all you need to do is talk um, and kind of share, maybe if you're, you know, struggling, but you can just be struggling and trying to find that place to feel safe to have these kind of conversations. So I want to make sure that people know that that is an option uh, related to how we think about this particular podcast too. Mm -hmm. So um, what I always ask people, you know, as we wrap up to drop one piece of wisdom, I call it wisdom dropping. If you had one piece you dropped a lot of wisdom already, but if there's one thing that you want to leave people with, what would that be? It would be that there is a seed, a lot, a lot of times people come up to me and they're just like, I just, I want to do what you did. I just don't know how, I don't know how. Right. And I think sometimes people, they judge these things that keep bugging them, you know, like these ideas or these insights um, that keep bugging them. Like, oh, that's not it. It's not worth me taking the risk. And the last thing I would want to leave you is, but what if it is, what if it, what about if you did figure out a way? to make it work. And it's a gazillion times easier 
now than it even was six years ago. We have the ability to make a film or short films or, you know, short video on our phones, right? If you have something to say. And um, I never thought in a million years that I would feel like, wow, all of that nudging by whatever, whatever I, you know, my higher power, right? God or whomever, you know, is in control was nudging me to continue thinking that I, that it was me that needed to do this until one day I decided, okay, I'm going to do it. I took the assignment, right? Um, I had no idea that I would feel one day like that was just the beginning. I thought that was the end, but it was the beginning. And now I feel so locked and loaded to my purpose more than I ever have. And so that would be like number one subset two, that (laughs) the things that you want, all the things that you want in your life um, are often in, in the package. Like when you open up the package from Amazon, all the things you want are in that package called make that dream a reality. Because now I get mm-hmm. to write a book. Now I get to speak um, to meet amazing people like you, get invited to cool stuff, um, all because I decided to take that initial risk. And so it would be to believe that that nudging is for a purpose and that you are literally being chosen to see it through. Yes. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And I couldn't agree with you more, more snaps, claps, thumbs up on that one. So <laughs> thank you so much. And I think the other thing that, that, um, you know, when I think about what you're saying, you know, some similar to me and why the podcast exists, right. It's like, I had this idea and boom, wow, here we are. But, and, um, you know, I also know that, you know, we don't do this alone. And I, and I heard you talk about your partner and other people. So, you know, when you take that dive into your doing your dream and, you know, living out your calling, um, you know, have a, have a peer posse with you <laughs> or yes. a person. Like, I think that's important. Yep. So um, Denise, I can't thank you enough for joining me. I'm so, so, so glad we met at that meeting. It was kind of like, you know, oh, it's a sister girl. I can talk to her. <laughs> like, this is going to be like, I, I know we're going to like, you know, we're going to get on. Like, I had no idea that we would have so much in common. So yes. this has just been a wonderful um, conversation and learning for me as well. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And I feel the exact same way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I want to um, thank our listeners for joining in. And I uh, remember that it does help if you subscribe. I know I say that, blah, blah, blah. but yeah, if you could subscribe, give us a comment too. I'm like dying to know what people think. And um, remember to join in next week to Unapologetically Black Unicorns. <laughs>